Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we know how much you love us because you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We thank you, Father, that he was you raised him from the dead the third day so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and will never perish. Well, this morning, we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the meaning of the words that we're going to, we're going to hear this morning in, in your word. We ask also, Father, that we may be able to fully appreciate the death and resurrection of your son when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We also pray for the needs of all the saints. I'd like to pray particularly this morning for Peter and the very, very difficult things that he's continued to have to go through. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If everybody could stand now and we'll have our congregation song. Thank you, Pastor. Well, Peter, you're welcome. Today we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper after service. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, so we'll have a special Resurrection Sunday message at that time. All righty, let's begin with today's message. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Title of today's message, I gave you an example. I gave you an example. Again, John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And I'll read that now. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. But so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. We are now in chapter 13. In John chapters 13 and 14, our John's take on the last Passover meal Jesus had with his disciples. As we've seen often, 
his take on things is very different from that of the other three gospel writers. About 90% of what John writes is unique to the gospel of John. And, and, and here, um, we'll see the same thing is true. Now, according to Mark and Luke, this meal was held in what's called an upper room. I'd like you to see that now. Please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 11 to 12. Luke, chapter 22, verses 11 to 12. We, we use the expression upper room. I want you to see where that comes from. Because John doesn't mention the upper room. Luke, chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. Prepare the Passover meal, the last one that he would celebrate with his disciples. Now, in John's gospel, commonly all of chapters 13 to 17 are called the upper room discourse. However, I'd like you to turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. John, chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. Up to this point, they are in the upper room. And the discourse that Jesus gives, the teaching that he gives, he does give in the upper room. But I want you to notice something at the very end of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. John 14, verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Notice this. Get up. Let us go from here. So so they got up from where they were in the upper room, and they went somewhere else. And um, probably what they did was at that time they um, sang a hymn while traveling to the Mount of Olives. So they left the upper room, and they sang a hymn, and they were traveling to the Mount of Olives. And then from there, they would end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, unlike the other three Gospels, John does not record the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. In other words, the, the, the parts that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they talk about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, isn't in the Gospel of John. It's the only one that doesn't have it. Instead, what does he do? He gives an extended discourse between Jesus and his closest disciples. Most of chapters 13 through 17 are that. If you have a, if you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to see a lot of red in these five chapters because it's mostly Jesus teaching his disciples and only his closest ones, the closest 11 Okay, now look at John chapter 13, verse 1 again. Let's go back to our passage this morning. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, 
got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. I want you to notice what's in the heart of Jesus at this time. Very simply, it's love. He loved his own who were in the world. Those are his disciples, believers. He loved them to the very end. So now what does he do? He gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments. He takes a towel and he girds himself. And what does that mean? He's preparing to do something. What is it that he's preparing to do? Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. In other words, he cleaned their dirty feet. This was a task that the house servant would perform for the guests of the master of the house. In other words, it was humble work intended to serve other people. Humble work intended to serve others. His disciples were guests of his father. And so now just as Jesus had humbled himself to become a man, so now he humbles himself again to become a servant. He humbled himself. He was God in heaven and he humbled himself to become a man. And now he humbles himself even more to become a servant to his to his disciples. And this is only the beginning of his service to his disciples and to all of us, because the very next day, Jesus is going to humble himself even further, even further. He's going to humble himself. How? By becoming obedient to his father once again to the point of death, death on a cross. We've seen throughout the Gospels and we, we focused last week on that unique relationship between the father and the son. And here in chapter 13, we see it again. It's mentioned. It's mentioned at the very beginning of chapter four of chapter 12, where it says um, he, he, he was his hour had come in verse in verse one that he would depart out of this world to the father. And then in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So it's all in the environment, all with the mindset, all with the focus. Again, this, this unique relationship between Jesus and his Father. So and then to, so here tonight, he humbles himself. He, he girds himself to serve others, to serve his disciples. And then, so that was that was humbling himself to become a servant. And the very next day, he is going to humble himself even further, as far as he possibly could in his humanity. He will become obedient to his father all the way to the point of death, death on a cross. Cross, as it, as it were, was, was the worst punishment reserved for the worst criminals. So he went from being God in heaven in all his glory to becoming a man. He went from being a man to being a servant of his disciples. He went from being a servant to his disciples to go to the cross to the point of death, all in obedience to his father. A cross which was the most hideous death you could imagine. It was the most humiliating because it was reserved for the worst criminals. And so that's that that is really I can't imagine humbling himself any more than that. Any more than that. He went all the way to the end. And then what happened? Well, the night before, we see that he's cleansing the feet of his disciples. 
the very next day, he cleansed us from all our sins, as we sang this morning. All of them with his own blood. He had water with which he washed the feet of the disciples. The next day, he is going to cleanse us from our sins, all of them, in the greatest act of humility and service ever known to mankind. So I'd like you to, we're going to look at a couple of passages now in the book of Hebrews. And, and so I want, to, I want you to concentrate on what these passages are saying. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, notice this, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, his death on the cross was the one complete provision for all our sins. It was one sacrifice. It happened 2,000 years ago. It will never have to happen again. And it dealt with all the sins of the world. In, in one act, in one act of humility at the cross. Now he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's there waiting from the time until all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. God the Father is bringing that about in history. Then verse 14, again the point, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Think of it. You are perfected for all time because of believing in Christ, who was the one sacrifice for your sins for all time. But by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, it's finished. You're never going to need another offering for sin. You're never going to have to do anything to have your sins forgiven. Christ accomplished it all. And and, and And the writer of the book of Hebrews is at pains to make sure you understand this point. One sacrifice, not many, for all the sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, his work is finished. He's at the right hand of God up there. He's our advocate at the right hand of God. He is our propitiation for all of our sins. Jesus did all this. We don't have we don't have to do anything. We couldn't do anything. You know, only God can forgive sins. We, can, we can't do anything for our sins to be forgiven. I say this, those of you who may have um, studied in systematic theology, um, and I I just want to talk for a minute about people who have studied that, realize that this passage in John is used to talk about confession of sins, believe it or not. And I say that because the the absolute opposite is true. There's a huge search in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, for confession of sins. As a matter of fact, Search anywhere in the Gospel of John for confession of sins. You won't find it. And we see at the very end what the lesson is for the apostles. And it's not, now that I've washed your sins away, you need to confess them again. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, the disciples didn't do anything that night. They just sat there while Jesus washed their feet. 
at the same the same is true for us. We just sit there as as we see Jesus at the cross dying for all of our sins with one sacrifice for all time. It is finished. But by one offering, he has perfected. I love that word. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who believe in Christ are sanctified. In God the Father's court, we have been perfected for all time. If you've been perfected for all time, do you have to do something else to be even more perfected? Of course not. Of course not. It's all been done for you. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. Who is acting in verse 16? The Lord is acting. This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws laws into their heart and on their mind. I will write them. Then he says in verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. If he's forgotten them, let me ask you a question. Why are you why would you be obsessed with them? When he's forgotten. Not only has he forgiven, he's forgotten. I'm not going to remember your sins and lawless deeds anymore. Anymore. My son has given the one perfect sacrifice for sin. God's saying, that's good enough for me. I, I, I look at you and I see that you are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's enough for me. I don't need you to do anything else. I don't need you to have fits about your sins. I don't need you to go and feel guilty about them. I need you to understand I don't remember him anymore. God's saying this. There'll be others in your life who will remember them all the time. But God has forgotten them. He has totally forgotten them. And then to make that point in verse 18, now where there is forgiveness for these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, Jesus Christ gave the one perfect offering, the one perfect sacrifice. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Your sins have been forgiven. There's no longer any offering for sin. I'd like you to go back to chapter nine now in the book of Hebrews, chapter nine, verse 26. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 26, continuing this thought. Hebrews 9, 26. Otherwise, he, Jesus, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. I want you to know something. In the context of sins, can you see that even here, uh, he's going to make a point that's not true, but it's about Jesus having to do it. In other words, the idea was Jesus is the only one who can, can do what it takes to have our sins forgiven. Let me say it again. Jesus is the only one who could do anything that would allow our sins to be forgiven. Okay, so if anybody was going to suffer again and again for our sins, it could only be Jesus. But see, it was one perfect offering so that he doesn't have to do anything anymore in the issue of sins. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now here we go again once at the consummations of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. On Thursday evenings in the book of Isaiah, we're studying this right now in Isaiah 49. The idea was he was hidden and then he man, he was manifested. Remember that? Those of you guys who were with me on Thursdays, you, you don't, you know, it's okay. I should have tapes of Thursday. You do, right? I should have tapes of Thursday evening and, and order you to listen to them again and again. <laughs> All right. Hebrews 9, 20, 26, again. Second half, now once at the consummation of the ages. In other words, the consummation of the ages means that God the Father picked the perfect time for this to happen. Some people wonder, you know, why was it 2,000 years ago? Why was it at a time where there wasn't mass communication? You know, I'm seeing more and more how brilliant God is because, you know, with mass communication, you know what happens? Mass deception, right? That wouldn't have been an advantage, Right. Believe me, the enemies of Christ would have gotten a hold of that and twisted it and perverted it to the point where you wouldn't even recognize the gospel anymore. I am so glad that he came 2000 years ago. And I'm so glad that the strategy of of spreading the gospel wasn't to have angels everywhere, wasn't to have the mass media. You know what it was? It was to have other believers now in turn turn and tell others about the good news. That's how the gospel spread. And as a matter of fact, it was one man, Paul, that God, that Jesus Christ gave the responsibility to go to all the Gentile world himself. And he, he didn't have radio. He didn't have TV. He didn't have the Internet. You know, he trudged the miles and miles and miles. And what happened was he would found churches. And when he found a church, then they would in turn go out. You know, he went to Ephesus, Paul did. And then it says that because of the word spread from what he was teaching, the people that were there went out. And they proclaimed the gospel and then more people heard and that they proclaimed the gospel so that after three years, the entire province of Asia had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad he did it that way. I'm so glad because another because you know what else it did? It's, it knit believers together. You know, it knit together those who had already believed with those who heard the message from them and then would believe. And then they and then they in turn would be taught by Paul or Paul's disciples, all the great things that happen at the moment you believe in Christ, all the great things about our identity in Christ, all the great things about our sins being forgiven and the fact that we're going to be, we have already been the adopted sons and daughters of, of God, the father. We're in union with Christ forever. He's in us forever. All these great things. They're all taught. From one believer to the next. In any event, notice again verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin, the whole thing, by the sacrifice of himself. Only one person could do that. Jesus Christ. There's not a thing you could do to have your sins forgiven. I know I'm repeating, but man, you need to hear that. You know, your confession, you could confess to your blue in the face. All right. And that wouldn't do anything to have your sins forgiven. You want to know why? Because you're doing it. (laughs) I hate to to insult anybody with that. You know, it's like baptism. You know, If, if some people think that you have to be baptized to be saved. Wow. You know, there's nothing. One of the, uh, baptism has been the most confused thing in the church for centuries. Should we 
dip somebody in a tank? Should we sprinkle water on them? Should they do it? When, should we do it when they're an infant? Should we do it when they're a new believer? And on and on it goes. And of course, Paul comes and says, listen, there's one baptism. Then he goes on to say, you've been baptized into Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll tell you what, if I had a choice between having some man dip me in a tank and having God, the Holy Spirit, place me in union with Christ, I know what I want. I want union with Christ through the power of the Spirit. See, that's the thing. If a man does it, you can always question the man. What if a man baptizes you when you find out five years later he's a false teacher? How good that make you feel? Not so good. Oh, I got to do it again. But if you know and believe that God, the Holy Spirit, has baptized you once into Christ forever, and, and God, the Holy Spirit, is perfect, and it had nothing to do with you, by the way, you didn't have to do anything. After you believe in Christ, it's going to happen. It happened. So that's the way I like it. I mean, I, I spent years in the Catholic Church. Where all they do is pound into you that you got to do this and that and the other thing. You got to go into a box and talk to another sinner and tell them what you did all wrong. And then you got to come back and go outside and do penance and all these prayers. And then you have to come back every Sunday. And if you don't, you're going to hell. My parents, when they were married, they went on their honeymoon. They drew, they drove from Rhode Island to Connecticut and there was a priest there. When he found out that they weren't able to go to church on Sunday, he told them, you have just started your married life in sin. That's the Catholic Church. And I, I say that because it's just the, the Catholic Church is really just the overt manifestation of a lot of things that other churches believe anyway. But they don't. But it doesn't go to the extent that the Catholic Church. That's why I, I don't love the Catholic Church. But I love the fact that it's that it's you can look at it and it's so confused in its teaching and so contradictory and so contradicting the Bible and on and on and on. And I look at millions of people who buy it and I say to myself, you know what? Satan's got a, done a really good job blinding the minds, you know. But see, that's why that's why we have to come back always to the word of God, always to the truth that it's, it's the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. We are saved by grace, not by works, yet lest any man, any man should boast. And I love that, too, because it doesn't say lest you should boast. It says any man. You know how many pastors boast in the number of baptisms they do? I, I saw I don't remember. There was a website I saw a couple of weeks ago that actually had a ticker on it. You know, by March 25th, we baptized 75. And oh, and even more, we've we've also we've also had eight, eight, 88 people believe in Christ. <laughs> How do you know? Well, they were baptized, really. So all it takes is for somebody to show up one day and put their hand up and agree to have somebody else dip them in some water. Well, that's proof that they're saved. Bull. That's not proof that they're saved. There's only there's only one proof that you're saved, which means that you trust in the blood of Christ for your salvation and you're going to heaven, not because of anything you did, but because of believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And if you've done that, don't let anybody tell you anything else. Okay? Don't let anybody ever tell you anything else. Don't let them have you confuse it. You know, the Bible, the, the New Testament epistles want to make, make sure that you are totally confident that you've been saved and you can never lose it, that you are eternal secure, eternally secure. 
And there, and it, you know why? You know why the Bible does that? Because there's going to be so many out there that is going to tell you you're not. It's going to tell you you have to do this program in order for that to happen. You got to do things a certain way in order for that to happen. It's lies. It's not true. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, let's go back to God, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, I want you to notice something. It's real simple, but you can miss it. He washed their dirty feet. No disciple washed his own feet. So, so in other words, people that want to say that this is this shows you that the stuff you got to do, you got to confess your sins. If you think that's true, then you were totally not paying any attention to the text. OK, because they didn't wash their own feet. He washed their dirty feet. That's really important. The example he's going to give, you know, we've read it already, is I washed your feet, you wash other people's feet. See, nobody can wash their own feet, especially after you get to the age 60. <laughs> or, you know, it's a kind of harder and harder to do it. I don't know if I do a good job. Do you ever, I'm going off, but do you ever try to wash the bottom of your feet when you're in the shower? Man, I have a hard time with that. Anyway. You have a stool to put your dick. Yeah, but point is that in the, in, in, in the, and what Jesus did, what he did was wash their feet. They didn't do their, they didn't wash their own feet. And that shows us that only God has the power and authority to forgive sins. Let's, let's go on. John chapter 13, verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You can make the application, by the way, to what Jesus is going to do the very next day. Right. If, if I don't cleanse you from your sins, then you can have no part with me. So Simon Peter, I love Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I'm going to get a real good bath now. You see, by the way, verse seven gives us a clue as to what Jesus is illustrating by washing their feet. Notice what he says. He says, what I do, what I do to you, what I do, you do not realize now, Peter, but you will understand hereafter. The reason why that's a clue is that hereafter, Peter's going to write some letters, two of them, actually. And so and so we're going to see in his letters that he finally understood what was going on here. In any event, Peter does not understand what Jesus is doing now. But he will understand thereafter in the future. He will understand. 
Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. In other words, there's one person in there who refuses to have Jesus cleanse him. Refuses. Not going to believe in Jesus. Of course, we know who that is. He's already been identified. Judas Iscariot. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them. In other words, he's just washed their feet. Peter says, I don't want you to do it. Jesus says, if I don't, you'll have no part with me. And he sits down again. And now he's going to teach him the lesson. It's interesting because that was the pattern of how Jesus taught, especially in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he would, he would tell a parable, and then he would tell what it means. He's doing the same thing here. He, only it's, not a, it's a lived parable. In other words, it's actually happening. And then he's going to tell them this, what the meaning of it. Why did I do this? Okay, verse 13. Oh, let's do verse 12 again. So when he had washed their feet, and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's what it says. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I just have to note in passing that he's, he's saying, if I wash your feet, you wash one another's feet. In other words, in other words, the, again, the person is, Jesus is saying the person really can't wash their own feet. So you guys got to do it for you. We're going to see that he's talking about forgiveness. He's not talking about confession of sins, right? Because that's something you do yourself. He's talking about forgiving one another because that's something you do to each other. He's talking about serving because that's what you do to each other. He's talking about love the way this the way we started this morning in chapter 13. I gave you an example. Jesus gave them an example by washing their feet. He said, I, I wash your feet and I, I, I did that as an example of what you should now do. So what did Jesus do? Remember, he humbled himself in order to serve them. He humbled himself in order to serve them. What did he say? I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Okay, so if Jesus washed their, washed their feet in service in order to serve them, then what are we to do? Whoops. I didn't put this in. Darn. That's important. They are to humble themselves. Did I put it after this? No. All right. So Jesus washed their feet as an example of what they should do. Jesus humbled himself in order to serve them. So therefore, what, what are we supposed to do? Humble ourselves to serve one another. That's the message. We are to humble ourselves to serve one another. Because if Jesus could do it, and he's the Lord, and he's the teacher, he's the master, we, ought, we should do it to one another. That's why he did it. He understood. Now, he understood Peter's reaction. And in a sense, he, that was helpful 
to move the message along, you know, to say, wait a minute, you're the, you're the Lord. I, I, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, I'm going to humble myself to wash your feet. And so if Jesus can do it and he's the Lord and the master, then he's saying, you, you ought to be able to do the same thing. After all, Jesus said, I don't have dirty feet. <laughs> right. But you do. And, and so if I'm willing to wash your feet, you got to be willing to wash one another's feet or to humble one of ourselves to serve one another. Please look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 10. Matthew chapter 23, verse 10. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to his closest disciples, the apostles. After Jesus dies and is risen from the dead, and and he's going to turn to these and say, you basically, you are the leaders. You are the ones that are going to be the ones that are going to lead my sheep. You're going to preach the gospel first. Okay, so they're leaders. What are you saying? I'm the ultimate leader and I washed your feet. Don't get don't get it in your head. But because you're a leader, oh, I can't wash other people's feet. I can't serve other people. I'm the leader. He's going to say, well, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the unbelievers do. We're different. Look at look at Matthew 23, verse 10. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader. That is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. See, that's that's part of the lesson, too. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, which Jesus never did, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So we so we are to serve one another in humility. Let's go forward to uh, actually let me give you a point, not only through humility, but one other way. And that is through love. The very beginning of the chapter, we find out that Jesus loved his own to the end. And if you think about what the end is of his, of his life, of his natural life, is when he died on the cross. He loved him all the way to the cross. And, and so he was illustrating that by being willing to be a servant to them. And he's doing that through love. So let me ask a question. Well, you already got the answer. How are we to serve one another? How is it possible to serve one another? Only through love, to, to be to be authentically serving one another, not forced to, but just, I want to do this because Drake Christ did it. It's through love that you do it. Never forget that. It's through the love that you've been given by God that you are then to use as your motivation for serving one another. Please turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Do you have any idea... The level of the freedom that you have because of what Christ did. Did, did, did. did you ever stop and think what it really means to be freed from sin? To be dead to sin? To be freed from the law? 
I mean, it's the ultimate in freedom. What are we going to do with that freedom? Look at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But what? Through love, serve one another. Through gratitude, serve one another. Understanding the amount of love that Jesus had for you when he went to that cross, serve one another. Understanding the fact that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God the Father loved you and made you alive. Through that, serve one another. Through the love that God gave you first, serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, because Jesus was a servant all the way to his death, our sins have been forgiven. I hope I hope you got that this morning from the book of Hebrews, right? Go back if you didn't. Go back again and again and again till you get it. That Jesus went to the cross and he served us so that our sins would be forgiven. Okay. So if we're going to do what he did, then what does that mean? Then we should forgive one another's sins. Right? Right. Now, here's the thing. You might say, well, I thought all our sins were forgiven. They have been. They have been. But but between two people, if you've hurt somebody, right, it's awfully hard sometimes to forgive them on a human level. Not, in other words, in other words, God in his court has forgiven you. And that's everything. You're justified forever. But we live our daily lives. Right. And we we do things that hurt and offend other people. Well, people do things that hurt and offend you at a human level, in our daily lives together. And what he's saying is, he's saying you should forgive somebody when they do that to you. Because that's how you serve them. That's what it means to be loving. That's what it means to put aside your agenda and focus on their need to be forgiven. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This says it much better than I just said it. No surprise, because this is the word of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. See that? When you, when you, when they, when you have the sting of somebody hurting you, Okay, just remember that Jesus Christ died so that because of the sting of sin, right? And he died for, for, for you. And, and, and all your sins have been forgiven by God. But now we should be kind to one another now, understanding that we've been forgiven of everything, understanding how much God loves us. Let's be kind to one another. Let's not be hard-hearted. Let's not hold a grudge. Let's not complain about somebody. Let's not bring up what they did to us again and again and again. I have people in my life that are still bringing things up. That happened when I was seven years old. Can you believe it? That is not forgiveness, right? That is not. It's the opposite. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And a little while in John chapter 13, Jesus will teach them again about how they are to treat one another. Please turn to John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Notice the next part, though. Even as I have loved you, even as I have loved you, how did he love us? Well, he humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself to become a servant. He humbled himself to die in our place. So that's how he loves us. He loves us so much that he sacrifices very self for us. So he's saying, as I have loved you, then you should love one another. I, was, I, I went for it. I gave you the ultimate example of love. You know what happened because of that. You know that everything about your life turns around. And, and under, when you understand that you've been forgiven of all your sins, that God, who is all powerful, loves you. When you know that, then very simple, you ought to love one another. You ought to do it. It it ought to be your response. And then verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So if if you want people to pay attention to the fact that we are the disciples of the Lord Jesus. What we're supposed to do is love one another. That's what we're supposed to do. Right here. We're supposed to love one another in gratitude for what Christ has done for us. When they see that, okay, and then we say to them, well, we're grateful because of what Christ did for us. And they, and they see how much we love one another. They're going to say, well, tell me. What did he do that would make all these people? You guys, you guys forgive each other of your sins. You love one another. You serve one another. What, what happened? What, who is this Jesus that, that you respond to in this way? Well, he's the son of God. He became man and he died on a cross for our sins and he was buried. And on the third day he rose again. So whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life and all your sins will be forgiven. Now do you understand why we would be so loving to one another, even though we got him who's a pain in the neck and him who's a gossip and him over there that has sexual sin. Can you understand it now? And hopefully some will. Hopefully some will eventually get it. It's love that motivates us to humble ourselves. It's love. It's love. It's love that motivates us to serve other people. It's love that motivates us to forgive one another. Please look at John chapter 15, verse 9. John chapter 15, verse 9. Uh, Jesus is now going to talk about the fact that he talked about his own love. Now he's going to remember this 
unique relationship we see over and over again in the Gospel of John between Jesus and his Father. So now Jesus is going to finally point to the Father and say, I want to now tell you about how he loved me. See, because that was my motivation for going to the cross. Jesus did it out of love for his Father. Look at John chapter 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Rest in my love. Live according to my love. That Make that your home. Make that home base. The love that I have for you, Jesus is saying. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, let me ask you something. Some people want to say this is the Ten Commandments. But what what was the commandment that what were the commandments that Jesus kept? See, some of the uh, you know when people like <coughs> when people say Jesus kept the law for us, I challenge you to find a verse in the Bible that says that. That's that's not what he did. Mm. Don't get me wrong. He he's perfect. He never sinned. But what he did was become our sacrifice for sin. That's how the law, that's that's the reason why we're no under the law, now no longer under the law. Not because he kept the law for us, but because he died for us. Okay, so this is not talking about the Ten Commandments, okay? It's talking about something else. It's talking about what what was God the Father's commandments to Jesus? Well, we've seen it, haven't we? He says, I say nothing without my Father first telling me what to say. I do nothing except by what my Father asks me to do. And he asked me to all the way to the cross to die for your sins out of love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you want to understand what love is, just look at the cross when Jesus laid down his life for you. And he's saying, and I want you to now love one another with 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 what you have available. You know, you're not called to go to the cross. You are called to maybe put aside your agenda or your time, right, in order that you may be able to pay attention to somebody else who's hurting. That that you may be able to lay down um, your resources when when somebody really needs them a lot more than you do. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Oh, and by the way, speaking of Peter, love is the thing that Peter understood later, later on when he wrote his letters. I want you, I want to show you that we get close to closing today. Look at first Peter chapter one, verses 22 to 23. First Peter chapter one, verses 22 to 23.
This is what Peter understood later. Verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Why? For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. It, it's the word of God is the reason you understand the love that Christ has for you. So that it's so it's not something spectacular. It's right here in the book. And he's saying, listen, I want you to purify your souls in obedience to the truth. I want you to abide in my love. Purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently loving one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of sea which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You know, too often people look to religion for some spectacular experience. <laughs> they want to see something spectacular or better still, they want to do something spectacular. A lot of people are just waiting for that. They're thinking, well, somewhere down the road now, if I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe if I sing enough or if I get emotional enough, I'm going to end up doing something spectacular. That's not the truth, by the way. The truth lies elsewhere. The truth is that the greatest thing of all is not a miracle. The greatest thing of all is not speaking in tongues. The greatest thing of all is not some great public display about our self-righteousness. It's not a great intellect. It's not the power of prophecy or even faith to move mountains. The greatest thing of all is simply to love one another and to be loved by others. That's the greatest thing of all. Because that's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said. So I have faith to move mountains, but if I don't have love... It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Love is the motivation. Love is what God showed us when Jesus went to the cross. There's nothing more spectacular than seeing the God of the universe have his son humble himself to be a man, humble himself to be a servant, humble himself to die for our sins and be raised from the dead. And as we close this morning, please turn to 1 John 3, 1. Because, because the best love of all is to simply know how we are greatly loved by God our Father. That's the greatest love of all. To, to know that we are greatly loved by God the Father. Whitney Houston sang a song once. Greatest love of all is loving yourself. It's not. You want to know why? I think I know why. It's because, man, <clears throat> loving yourself is fleeting. You know, and loving yourself is a fallible, sinful person loving you. <clears throat> it's not the greatest love. Here's the greatest love. First John 3, 1 John <clears throat> 3.1. See how great a love. The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are.
That's the greatest love of all. All right, let's close in prayer as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, now that we have seen the example that Jesus has given to us, now that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we bring into remembrance that sacrifice, Father, help us to be able to have this time reserved when we allow the Spirit to, to teach us in our hearts something about what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us that we need to see this morning, that we need to understand better. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The greatest challenge of all is getting these lids off. <laughs> the communion elements. Real simple. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. As we eat the bread and we drink the cup today, let's just reflect on this greatest love of all. Let's reflect on the fact that he gave his body for us. Let's reflect on the fact that he poured out his blood for us. Let's always remember these things about him. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for telling us all about these things in your word. We thank you for your gifts, for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness and your love. We thank you for the spirit pouring in the love of God into our hearts. And we thank you for the other members of the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have you have trusted us with the greatest message of all. And there's nothing better that we can do to serve another person, a bound believer, than to tell them the truth about the good news about your son. And so, so we close today, Father, reflecting on the fact that he gave his body and poured out his blood for us. 
Help us to remember those things as we leave so that we can tell other people the good news that will set them free, the good news that will justify, that God will justify them forever and receive eternal life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.